chapter 12, we have come as far as verse 7. We kind of finished there at verse 6. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. That relates back to the dragon and his angels. Neither was there, not T-H-R-E, but there, the dragon and his angels. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard in response to that, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, ye and that dwell, you that dwell in them. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath. The reason, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman there was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times and a half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood." And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We are in this Place chapters 12 and 13 that give us a picture of the drama that is taking place behind the scenes, the invisible war. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a great book called The Invisible War. And this gives us a picture of what's going on behind the scenes. In the drama, we're introduced to the cast and characters. We began last week by looking at the woman and you can get the go on the app, listen to the study from last week if you weren't here. We identified her as Israel. And it's clear as you dig into it. Then when you come to the great red da- dragon with seven, seven heads and ten horns, that's very obvious. We went to Daniel chapter 17 and more importantly here to verse 9 that tells you it's the old dragon, the, the serpent, the deceiver, Satan. And then we were introduced to the man-child, the male-child that the woman brought forth, Israel bringing the Messiah into the world, that is soon that he's about to rule all the nations of the world. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear? 
Jesus is about to rule all the nations of the world we live in. I am excited about that. And that he was caught up to heaven, to, to God and to the throne of God, can only be Christ. Now, as we move further, we're introduced to Michael, his angels, this scene of battle of those who have the testimony of Christ at the end of the chapter, then in the chapter 13, the Antichrist and the false prophet. So we're going to see this cast of characters. We begin here in verse 7, it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, you wouldn't expect war in heaven. Aren't you be glad when we get there, this ain't going on, it's settled here. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and the dragon prevailed not, neither was their place, the dragon and his angels, found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out <clears throat> with him. So we're going to see in the process of the book, you know, Satan being demoted, being cast down. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verse 18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. That was an incident that took place in the distant past, no doubt sometime during Genesis 2 and 3. And there he fell from his principality. He fell from his position. Ezekiel 28 tells us he was the anointed cherub that led worship around the throne of God. And he was puffed up with pride in Isaiah 14. It said, I'll be like the Most High. And he fell from his position. He didn't fall from his access in the heavens, the spiritual heavens, because he's called the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, verse 2. And we're told in Job chapter 1 that he comes before God with the angels of heaven to accuse Job. So there is still access where he makes accusations and so forth. In this scene, finally he ends up at war with Michael and his angels, and he's cast from the heavenly realms to earth. He can go no, no longer to the heavens. He's cast to the earth. As we follow this in chapter 20, he's cast from the earth into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then after that, he is cast into Gehenna, outer darkness, where he is burned forever and forever. So he, we see this scene of him moving forward. Michael now um, brought before us, Michael, his name means who is like the Lord, he is the archangel. Daniel, we hear of him just, I think, five times in the scripture. Daniel, in chapter 10, says this, in chapter verse 13, But the prince of the king of Persia, principalities and powers, Gabriel speaking, withstood me 21 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, and it's first in order, one of the first princes came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Down in verse 21 of Daniel 10, it says, But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your 
prince, Michael the archangel there, called the prince of Israel. Chapter 12 in Daniel says, and at that time, and you're going to see it's the great tribulation, our scene in chapter 12 during this time. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to the same time. So we hear about him again there. Jude chapter, I mean, verse 9 tells us that Michael disputed with Lucifer over the body of Moses, which is back in the end of Deuteronomy. So this is not Satan's first contention with Michael here in this chapter, that he had contended with him, and Jude calls him Michael, definite article, the archangel, meaning there's just one archangel in heaven, that's Michael. We have the same inference in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, the Lord himself will descend with a, shout, with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. So Michael is involved in that transition. As the church goes up, Daniel 12 tells us, then he stands up at that time for the nation of Israel. So we hear him in the process there. No doubt Michael for a long time. It says in Jude, he didn't bring a rallying accusation against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Michael, no doubt, has been chafing at the bits, wanting to go. I'm sure when Peter hacked off Malchus's ear, then the Lord had to stick it back on again. And then the Lord said, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you think I could call down 12 legions of angels if I wanted to? 72,000 angels? And just one of them killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Do that 185,000 times 72,000. See what you come up with. But at any rate... He says, and I'm sure Michael was there. Jesus said, I could call down 12 legions. He must have fought, you know, Lord, let us go. They're spitting on him. They're beating him. You know, you can imagine Michael was chafing at the bits, wanting to go. And finally in this scene, our Father in Heaven says to Michael, you're on. You know, and he goes into this wholeheartedly. And Michael and his angels go to war with Satan and his fallen angels. And of course, there's no question. They overcome them. Satan and his angels didn't prevail. And then they're cast out of that heavenly realm where they accuse us now down to the earth. Take note of some things. There is always war between good and evil. Always. It takes place in the heavenlies right now today. We haven't come to this point where he's cast down yet. And it influences what's happening in the world. What this chapter is telling us is behind the present circumstances we live in, there are principalities and powers. And it tells us here there is a war. There is a war between the good and holy and righteous angels of God and Satan his de the deceiver with his unholy, unclean, foul angels. There's war between them. There's no making peace. Because if good ever makes peace with evil, evil has won. There's no peace. 
We need to understand that as these principalities and powers that are working behind the scenes as they influence us. Because we live in a world and in a culture that wants us to make peace with the evil we're surrounded with. And because we don't, we're closed-minded, we're fundamentalists, we're the troublemakers, we're the ones who are doing everything wrong. Meantime, here is all of this compromise, all of this foulness, all of these things going on around us, and if you'll just accept that, then you'll be the exact kind of Christian they want on the planet. But if you know Jesus, and he's your Lord and Savior, not just fire insurance, Lord and Savior, there's a stand that we take. It says, this one who has been cast down deceiveth the whole world. Look at it. He deceiveth the whole world. Elections can't fix that. Cancel culture can't cancel him. Nobody's woke enough to deal with that. Understand? He deceiveth the whole world. That's the world that we live in. And all around us, good and evil are trying to make a peace treaty, a compromise. There's none of that in heaven. There's none of that. That's the greater reality. There's none of that there. Because as soon as good would make a peace with evil, evil has won. And on this ball of dirt that we're living on right now, as soon as the church compromises and makes a peace treaty with the evil that surrounds us, the evil has won. Look, this world we're living in is hopeless. With all of the isms and all of their quote-unquote proper moralities, all of their freedoms, everything they're exercising around us, they're hopeless. It's disintegrating. And you and I are called to stand up and say, I may not know all of that, but I do know one thing. And of course, we get in trouble for the one thing we do know. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and he's coming to set up his kingdom. And anybody who takes their sins to Jesus is washed and cleansed and goes to heaven even though they don't deserve it. I know that. I don't know much else. But if that was all I knew, I'd be happy because that's enough, right? We do know that. And the world we live in doesn't know that. And this is the last generation. You and I are co- we're called to be contagious with this. Because there's a war. There is a war. And the old serpent is deceiving the whole world. Now, he is cast down to the earth. Verse 10 says, in response to, you can imagine the atmosphere. It says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now. They've been waiting to say that since the fall of Lucifer in the book of Genesis. Now, finally, this is it. Now is come salvation and strength 
and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Messiah. Now it's all going to become evident. The world can scream and say whatever they want to say, but the evidence is finally put on the front page. This is what's going to happen. The power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Now our brethren then has to be speaking of martyrs in heaven, couldn't be angels, of those raptured. The accuser of our brethren, this voice is in heaven, is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. This is what you have to understand. Look, the church might become lukewarm in this culture. Satan never becomes lukewarm. He is adamant. He is determined. He never relaxes. Ever. It's, it says here, but now the time has come, finally, for righteousness to rule. The time has come for salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Messiah. The reason is because the accuser of the brethren has been cast down, which accuses them before our God. Day and night is Greek for 24 and 7. Okay, he never stops. And look, it says he accuses us. Interesting word, categero. Categero. Category, obviously. And this is what Satan likes to do. If you and I are determining to walk with Christ, we want to do what's right. He, and, and we can get caught very easily into being legalistic about that. And then we, we can put our sin in categories. When we start to compartmentalize our sin, we're in trouble. Okay, yeah, you got a little bit of this going on, but I'm good in this category, I'm good in this category, I'm good as, you know, 95%, I'm good. It's just that 5%. So, you know, again, when I got married and my wife pledged me her troth, whatever that was, her faithfulness, she didn't say to me, look, 95% of the time I'll be faithful to you. 5% here and there, I might mess around with somebody else. What, what, what would that mean to me? And Christ loves us more than we love our bride, right? And the way the enemy can get you and I to compromise is when we compartmentalize our sin. Because there's so much going on we think is good in our life, then we'll allow something that isn't. Because we think on the scales, the good outweighs the bad. That's an old form of legalism. The truth is this. Jesus has dealt with our sin, singular, the whole issue, all done, once and forever, paid in full. It is finished, he said on the cross. It's done. And when the enemy can trick us into thinking, well, I'm pretty good in this category, I'm pretty, but, but here's this one thing. Yeah, then we're, we're working to our salvation again. If we're to have victory in Christ, it's because of who he is and not because of who we are. It's because he's the one that's given victory, not because we've earned it or worked for it. And we can easily start to fall into that trap because this one who deceives the whole world comes to the church and gets us to try to get us to category. He accuses us. And to compartmentalize our sin, look out for it. It's a deception. But it says this, look, in verse 11 in contrast, but they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their own lives unto death. Notice the overcoming. Notice the victory. The blood of the Lamb. You know, sometimes people talk about the precious blood of Jesus. 
Just think about it. It's precious because you and I are sitting here today, if you're a believer, imperfect, all kinds of things wrong with us. But that blood says to the Father, they're spotless, they're clean. You see, when the accuser of the brethren comes, it tells us he's been a liar from the beginning. Only thing is when he accuses us, he doesn't have to lie, does he? He can go right before the throne and tell the truth. Oh, get, yo, God, this one's yours. This one says he's a Christian. Look what he does here. Look what he did Friday night. Look what he's doing here. And heaven must groan here. Pastor Joe again. Here he comes. Yeah, the devil's up here rehearsing him again before. Yeah, we know all that. We, we know. Yeah, he did that. Yeah, we know all that. Yeah, we know. We know. But the blood of Jesus Christ has pronounced him completely spotless. Understand what it's saying here. We've overcome by the blood of Christ, not by our own. And that blood is precious. It's given us a destiny. It's given us a security. It's made us spotless. It's secured our future. There isn't anything as precious as that blood. We've overcome by the blood of the Lamb. William Cooper wrote, and I have to read it twice, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stain. Amen. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. How interesting. You know, the Talmudist, 2,000 years ago, putting the Talmud together from the Gemara and all the ancient Hebrew writings used to say this, that Satan accuses us day and night except on the Feast of Atonement. Think of that. Satan accuses us day and night except on the feast where the blood is put on the mercy seat, the blood of the Lamb. Just interesting. Even the Talmudist could say Satan accuses us day and night except on the Day of Atonement, which we live in every day, by the way. You know, Martin Luther, who got a lot of things wrong in the end of his life, he turned against the Jews, and because of that, Adolf Hitler adopted what Luther said at the end of his life and what Darwin, who was a racist, said, combined them and came up with an excuse to slaughter the Jews. But Luther early on was used of God to resurrect justification by faith, grace alone. And... As he turned against the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church put an edict out. They wanted to kill him. So he flees to Wartburg, Germany, and the prince who owns the castle there puts him up at Wartburg. I've been there to the castle. And he sits in a room to translate the New Testament. There's a, a, a vertebra from a whale's backbone, and that's what he sat on. I thought, you know, Luther had a whale's backbone, too, in those early days. And... Uh, he, he not only, the guy's genius, not only does he translate the Greek into German, there were 18 different dialects of German then. So for every Greek word he translated, he looked through all 18 dialects, di- dialects and he chose the most common word of all the 18 when he translated into German. He invented the modern German language, Martin Luther. 11 weeks he did it in. I think it took him three months for the Hebrew Old Testament. He does it in 11 weeks, 
But the tradition goes that Luther is sitting there translating the Greek and the German and Satan appears in his study, wood stove, you know, there's no heating or anything. Satan appears and starts to accuse Luther. Luther had his quill, he had paper, he said, wait. And he started to write it down. Yes, I'm lustful. Yes, I'm selfish. Yes, I have a problem with anger. Uh, yes, I do this. Yes, I struggle with that. Yes, anything else? Any, yes, yes. And he, started, he writes this long list of devils. Coming. Yeah, yeah. And finally, the devil says, that's it. And Luther wrote across the bottom, washed in the blood of the lamb. And he threw his inkwell at the devil and it splattered all over the wall. So when you go there to a study, there's a spot on the wall that's picked to shreds. Because 400 years of pilgrims have come and tried to pick off a little piece of the inky spot on the wall to remember them <laughs> that their sins are washed in the blood of the Lamb. How remarkable. How remarkable. And for you and I, it's the same thing. They overcame. Try to do that on your own. It's an exercise in frustration. Do it this way. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that better? And by the word of their testimony, we're living in a, in a world that needs to hear the truth. And they loved not their lives unto death. Look, uh, particularly during this time of the Great Tribulation. You know, Satan was emboldened, no doubt, when he slaughtered the two prophets. Then he thinks as they ascend, he can get into this battle in heaven. Michael and his angels overcome him. He's cast down. He's furious. He is the accuser of the brethren, but they overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony during this time as well. And look, this is important. They love not their own lives unto death. Our brethren around the world today are martyred and are persecuted and are imprisoned. And you know, there hasn't been a lot demanded of us thus far. But it is interesting with COVID, with everything going on around us, with the economy, all of these different things, for you and I to step back and say, well, you know what, I, I don't care about this anymore. I don't care about that anymore. I don't care about this anymore. You know, Lord, just blow the trumpet. Just get me out. It gets to the point where you, you don't care about your own life because you know either, you know, we're, that he's coming. We don't love our own lives unto death. So there's this incredible victory. In verse 12, it says this in regards to this victory. It says, therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell there in them. It's the only time the word heavens, plural, is used anywhere in the book of Revelation. The only place all of the heavens, plural, are told to rejoice is when Satan is cast down and the saints are saying we've overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And, the word, and all of the heavens, plural, stellar heavens, you know, the, the, the spiritual heavens, the atmospheric heavens, all of the heavens breaking loose in rejoicing and praise at this point in time. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them, but woe unto the inhabitants of the earth. This is not the same as earth dwellers, which is a term for unbelievers in the book of Revelation. I believe it's used nine times. This is literally just talking about those who are dwelling on the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, humankind, 
For the devil is come down unto you, notice this, having great wrath. Here's the reason. Because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Notice his, you know, inspiration. He's, he, you know, this is one frustrated persona. He tried to overcome the, the woman that was bringing forth the child from the book of Genesis, for it could not stop the birth of the Messiah. Tries to stop the Messiah, you know, slaughtering the babes in Bethlehem and then nailing the Messiah to the cross. Of course, the resurrection and the ascension he hasn't stopped the Messiah. Then he goes after Israel. He hates Israel, hasn't stopped any of that. He goes to war with Michael and his angels. He loses that. He gets cast down to the earth. Now he's down on the earth, and he's going to go after the woman again. She's taken by God and preserved in the wilderness. He's frustrated with that, so he decides to go after those who have the testimony of Christ. This is one angry person, personality. And he sa- it says here that he has great fury and anger because he knows his time is short. Look what it says there. It says, because he knows, he has 1,260 days, three and a half years left. Because he knows his time is short, he is inspired to take all of his wicked devices and use them to a degree that he never has before. That's an exhortation to us because we, as well, know that the time is short. Is that inspiring you and I to do everything we can on the opposite end? We are all called to be warriors, obviously, as we look into this. And again, the church may be lukewarm, but the enemy is never going to be. Are we doing everything we can do knowing that our time is short? Look, my time is short either way. I'm 70. But I believe he's coming. You know, he's coming. Our time is short. He's coming. Are we serious about that? Are we willing to relinquish some things to prioritize in ways that we haven't in the past? Satan is a deceiver, and he's deceived the whole world, and he is laughing about all of the things going on around us. When people riot, if they kill each other, they kill each other on the battlefield. What a hatred there is between races and between people. He mocks and he laughs because it is a spiritual Influence that causes those things to happen. Jesus said to you and I, all men will know you're my disciples by the, by the love you have one for another. We should come here, whatever race, whatever age, whatever ethnic background, whatever our situation, and everything that goes on out there should never influence us. We are to be a society different than any society in the world because they have no hope. And if we give ourselves to be what the Lord has asked us to be, knowing our time is short, and having some fervor and some fire in our own hearts, it's the, la- it's the last light this dark world is going to see. And we need to do that. Look, we can't compromise with it. There's a battle between good and evil. We can't say, okay, abortion is fine. No, every time there's an abortion, Satan rejoices because an image bearer has been put to death. But more than that, every time there's an abortion, he rejoices because he has made a mockery of the one father who has the right to give his child up to death. 
Every time sexuality is compromised in this world, he rejoices. Every time there's bigotry or prejudice or hatred, compromise, he rejoices. He deceives the whole world. Those are the spiritual influences that are behind the scene. When you turn on a television, you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. He commits himself to his abilities, knowing that his time is short. Obviously, so should we. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman. His hatred, he's going to go after the Jews. Zechariah tells us they're going to see a time of trouble greater than the Holocaust, greater than what they've seen. We should pray for Jerusalem, pray for Israel. He persecuted the woman which brought forth a man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the face of the serpent. So this goes back to verse 6 where it says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her 1,260 days. Matthew's Gospels, again, tells us this. It says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, three and a half years into the, the tribulation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So there will be Jews that are Jews indeed. Uh, Romans 11 says, amongst Israel there is true Israel. There will be many Jews, no doubt, that stay in Jerusalem, that worship the beast, that, you know, that comply. But there will be a remnant of true believers and true worshipers of Jehovah who flee into the wilderness. Specifically, Matthew says they flee into the mountains. So we know they can't flee west. That's to the beach. That's the Mediterranean. They can't flee south. There's no mountains in the south. They're not going to flee north because the beast and his armies are coming from the north. The only place they can flee is east. And there are mountains there in Jordan. Possibly Petra. Possibly. It's a speculation. But it's as good as any. That fortress there carved into the mountains. Isaiah 63 tells us who is this that cometh from Edom, the area of Petra, whose dyed garments from Basra. As the lightning shines, Jesus says, from the east to the west. That's the direction he'll come from. She flees. Wings of an eagle. Exodus chapter 19, Deuteronomy speak of this in regards to Israel's deliverance from Egypt and from Pharaoh to draw a picture of its supernaturalness. Here, too, these are not literal wings, but there's given to her that ability to move like that and to be delivered wonderfully as she flees from the Antichrist and fly into the wilderness. And then it says where she's 
nourished. That has to be supernatural. You can't buy or sell or get a job without the mark of the beast at this point. You can't get anything. There are people that are going to care for her, but I believe beyond the people, like Elijah at the brook Kareth was fed by the ravens, like the children of Israel received the manna that came from heaven, it seems to indicate she will be under supernatural care there because the enemy is not able to, to destroy her. She is put there, preserved there, taken care of there, and nourished there. Verse 15 says, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth upheld the woman, helped the woman, and opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which came out of the dragon's mouth. Now, is that literal or figurative? I don't know. You can't be dogmatic about it. It could be a figure. Speak, there's several places in the Old Testament that speak of armies as floods, clouds that cover the land. It could be that, that th these armies are chasing the Jews. Wanting. It also can be literal. Look, when you go to Israel, you'll notice the Jordan River, the mighty Jordan River. It looks like the Pennypack Creek. But the Jordan River, it, it kind of snakes back and forth like this all the way down the Jordan Valley. But we're told at certain seasons the Jordan overflow, overflowed its banks. And it was probably a half mile wide at those times. So is there some geological shaking in the Sea of Galilee? Is there something that allows a great body of water to come down the Jordan when the children of Israel are trying to cross across the Jordan River and then somehow the, the earth opens up like it swallowed Nadab and Abiram and you know, the, several times in the Old Testament, the earth opened up and did God's business. Uh, it, is it a literal or a figurative scene? You're entitled to your own opinion, whether it's literal, your opinion, or figurative, your opinion. You're entitled to your own. The idea is there's supernatural care preserving them and taking to the, to the place to preserve for 1,260 days. And the dragon was wroth. He flips out. He, he, he's enraged is the idea. He's wroth with the woman that went to make, and he went to make war with the remnant, which is plural, of her seed, which is singular, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it says here, there is a remnant, plural, a group of people that have been born of the seed, singular, that's the faith in Christ. They keep the commandments of God and they trust in Jesus Christ. That can only be the 144,000. When we get to chapter 14, we're going to see them all gathered at Mount Zion. There's not, a, not one of them is missing. And they are indestructible during this period. And they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams traveling, speaking, leading many to Christ. And, and Lucifer is so angry, and he's only going to have greater frustration when he does this than he goes after them. But they're, they're marked. They're sealed. He can't touch them. Um, what an interesting picture. I think, look, as we draw, now read ahead. Uh, next week it's the Antichrist, and you need to really make sure I'm not making stuff up about the Antichrist. Lessons here as we look into it, I think just to back up and say there's always war. There are spiritual influences in the world we live in 
in regards to those spiritual influences, there's actually a war between good and evil. There's no peace in heaven about that. There's a war. And that war influences what happens in the physical world. People don't realize they're being influenced, but they are. They're being influenced by it. You and I should realize that influence is there. So we need to realize we as well are at war. Paul tells us that anybody who's at war doesn't entangle themselves with the affairs of this life, but they seek to please their commanding officer. Scripture talks about armor and the sword and warfare all through. We're, we're in a struggle, in a battle. We are the emissaries of heaven. We have the truth to share with people who are in darkness, who are lost, but it is a struggle. This is a struggle in my life. And it seems there's been more warfare than ever. You know, sometimes you feel like throwing in the towel. But then where you go? Like Peter said, there's nobody else to go to. You know, who else has the words of eternal life? But the warfare can intensify like that. We're called to it. We're called to it. Pray for me. I'm a punk. I don't like it sometimes. I'm a wimp. But it comes. Understand that. There are influences behind the scenes. Secondly, I would say, if the enemy is determined to be a good steward over the short time he has to destroy life, you and I should be good stewards over the short time we have to preserve life. Amen? Amen. So we're going to take a stand for Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, stand then. (laughs) Stand. Father, I know you've overheard, and we look to you, Lord, and just these things are huge, Lord, the drama, the pictures, the the players that are involved, Lord, and just I'm sure we would faint cold out if our eyes were open and we saw this whole thing around us. Uh, Lord, give us wisdom. We're your sons and daughters. We're thankful that we're sealed by the spirit of promise till the day of redemption. We're thankful you said the evil one comes, but he touches us not. Lord, we are thankful that you have brought us from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. We're thankful you've entrusted us with a message that can change human lives for eternity, Lord. Cause us to be faithful in those things, Lord. By your grace, let us stand in the battle, Lord. Please, Lord Jesus, all of the glory will be yours, Lord. And we pray in your name. Amen.